How is this both for the horror of trying to keep sane, but also for those of us who are writers or enjoy good writing, just an incredible aesthetic achievement writing into the pain? The efforts to keep sane became harder. The vacuum fed the catatonic, catatonic drift to self-withdrawal, amplifying the constant voice of despair that played over and over in my head. My thoughts spoke loudly and incessantly. I awoke each morning with renewed hope that today the horror would end. As the hours passed, positive thoughts gave way to negative ones, and then to hopelessness and utter frustration. Sometimes I screamed out my frustration to the silence of the corridors. Only the damned of the place could hear me, but they too were helplessly enmeshed in their own despair. The months dragged on. I lost the sense of myself, plagued by the pervasive, self-destructive belief that I was forgotten, even by the ones I loved. I soon forgot what I looked like. My only image was reflected in the distorting waters of the urinal. I forgot the sound of my voice as the silent months went by. I don't think I can read the rest because it's too much for me too. Um, but if ever there was an Alan Payton candidate, whoever gets to make these decisions, this book is exactly what those kinds of awards exist for. Let's move to the a second theme. You've already preempted me. If there was a second alternative title, it would have been The Nightingale. What is so interesting at this point in time in our country is how reductive our conversations are politically in identitarian terms. Now, I made assumptions and Noah's corrected me. I don't know whether the Nightingale is white, black, Indian, whatever. He's very careful. I read the book twice. The second time I was trying to be a spy and try and figure out whether he left clues that he didn't intend to. So I'm not quite sure. But the book could equally have been called The Nightingale. And I want us to just touch on that theme with a couple of questions. The first is, and I, and I apologize for going back there, Mo, because I know it's really tough for you. Mo's curiosity with secrets started in his childhood. And there's a really beautiful connection between his familial early start of his life and him being a professional spy. His mom tragically left the family home when he was young and talked to us about how set up that set up in you a lifelong obsession with curi with with secrets okay uh you know you know the other part in the earlier part you said when i was <coughs> screaming out out of frustration in, in the sound and only the damned of the place to be in well there's uh Praveen. Praveen, i can just see Praveen there and he was one of the other people on this other cell, way down the corner. So welcome for me. Uh, and he was one of the damned as well. You know, the, so uh, having come up, uh, growing up in essentially what I would call a Indian family, because my dad was was very much Indian, was struggling with his own Indianness. And having children who he knew, he knew that didn't 
qualified for, not qualified, uh, didn't fit the, the classical category of India. I mean, if you take Shabir, he could look Lebanese or he could look, uh, you know, different. So we had always to grapple with this difference. Uh, so we wanted to know where does this difference come from? You know, why, why do we look different? And of course, I had cousins from my mother's side, from Rabia's side, who had a white life. Right? So, and they lived a, a, a white life. And I must say, uh, there was always, and, and I think apartheid does this to your mind, that you think that they are actually living a better life. Uh, because they're living a white life, they're living a better life. But recently I've discovered that it is actually we who lived a better life. And we lived a better life not because things were, were good. My dad was a, a working class man who struggled and uh, really did all the things, and my mom, Kay, uh, to, to bring us up and to take us out of the trappings of, of a working class life and we could come into, you know, into a middle class life. Uh, but this difference is the way we manage secrets in, in, our, in our lives. For example, you know, the darker side in the colored family, uh, you, don't, you don't talk about it. You just, you know, that's the person you don't give a name to. Uh, and if there's the whiter side in the family, and if they get a white girlfriend, etc., then you know you you all look very cool. Hey, my my cousin got a white chick, you know. Uh, so this is what apartheid did to all of us. Right? Uh, and it's not for that reason that I married a a. a <laughs> <laughs> I married a Caucasian woman. No, no. I married her because of her, uh, just an absolute beauty, her smile, and love. And uh, and if you look at my kids, you know, the one guy, Gibran will pass it white. Yeah. And Kay, Kay will do well with the cape colored category. <laughs> so, and it brings me down to this issue. And I, and I want to make this point. Because I now belong to what's called the FUM. You can figure out what the FU is, uh, but the M. Whenever I am asked to give my race of my children in school, now my daughter goes to a fence school, so Kay goes to a fence school. They have never, ever asked about her race. Gibran goes to a school uh, in Pretoria, and not because of the school's fault, but there is a requirement from this effing government that we must give race. Because we have some BE or some thing that we don't understand. But I belong to the fuck you movement. Don't ever ask me my race again. I'm a human being. And if you're not willing to accept it, ban your numbers, ban your statistics, ban all of that. Because I can tell you, someone who lived in the corridors of identity, it is a terrible, awful thing. You know, when you live in the corridors of identity, you're not this, you're not that. So uh, we went to an Indian school when we were young. We grew up in an Indian area. 
Then we lived in the colored school. The coloreds always knew we were Indians. The Indians always knew we were coloreds. The, the whites always knew we were Indians. You know? It was just like, okay, uh, you know, they have all of this. Uh, so we are just what we are. But mum's side was a secret because uh, mum left, uh, Rabia left when we were when we were very young, right? And no one spoke about why she left. And because they they didn't speak about it, you know, we developed theories and we developed concepts of like what happened, you know? Uh, did she have an affair? Didn't she have an affair? Uh, was dad an abusive guy? Was he not an abusive guy? What was the issue? Right? And because there were no answers, I I developed a a, a terrible obsession to unravel secrets. Right? And that was at a, a very, very young age. Uh, and it served me well in this book business. Uh, it definitely served Mac very well. Uh, but uh, So that's, that's how I became a spy. Thanks, Mo. We're going to pick up the pace. The question, obviously, but you'll find the answer in the book is, how do you get from that childhood obsession to being politicized and from there finding yourself in an MK unit and two significant years in the life of Mo from 1980 and then 1985. Uh, equally, the book could have been had a title entirely about Brian, uh, because the activity after 1985 centered around the importance of getting O'Brien to be able to come and do a proper audit of MK structures and strategies and tactics inside the country. Um, but I'm going to leave that detail because I want us to speak a little bit about this mysterious character called the Nightingale. Not everyone is familiar with that description. The Nightingale was first the bathroom officer, and it is absolutely fascinating the trust judgments mode that you've had to learn to make. And I don't know how you guys did it. Because one of the first things you had to confront yourself with is, here's an oak that's walking me to the toilet. I'm wetting my face to buy time before interroga interrogation continues. And he chats to me in a sort of good cop kind of way. And then your mind plays tricks with you. Is he potentially a reluctant security branch employee? Or is he actually just trying to extract information by pretending to be decent? Talk to us about an encounter and briefly describe that relationship. I mean, in a sense, it's the heart of the book as well. Uh, so don't give it all away, but just set the scene for those who are unfamiliar with it. So in, in detention, uh, there was this one guy who was showing me incredible kindness. And I thought, you know, because Ibi and Speedway and Mac and everyone, they teach you never trust the, the other side. You know, they always got a trick. So, you know, you give one word answers, uh, you not, uh, you don't engage. But I started to see that this human being was starting to tell me things that helped me uh, navigate the story through, through my detention. And I want to be quite clear that I was no hero in detention. If they squeezed my balls, I would have sang like a flipping canary. The, and that was my greatest, greatest fear, that they were going to push a wire through my urethra, 
and that I would I was just not be able to deal with that. So when I heard about Eunice's uh, portrait, you know, I just was amazed. I was shocked. I still am shocked at how he managed that brutality. But the Nightingale was someone who was, I think he was working me in the sense that he kept, you know, he kept developing a trust in me of him. So, and he did, even when I was in detention, he did tell us, tell me many things that allowed me, because I knew then Ibrahim was not uh, captured. Uh, I knew that Sirish was sticking to his story. And I could uh, take on the responsibility, which actually led to them releasing Eunice uh, in the first first round of detention. So when he came, when he came uh, to see me when I was released from detention, and when he brought this file, I was petrified. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. This I was petrified. You know, it was a brown file. Uh, it looked very official. Uh, it had Aetis for Hain there. I didn't know what the screwball Aetis for Hain means. Uh, I had to like go and get a dictionary to read Aetis for Hain in secrets. Uh, my Afrikaans was Nipaya uh, Kutni, and I had to learn and read the Afrikaans. But then I started to see something. Uh, it was pure, pure magic. The things that I started to read in those files told me what none of us ever saw before. That the ANC was infiltrated, that the structure of the security branch we got to know, the methods of working that we had no understanding before. So I was hooked from day one. When I read this file, and my greatest fear was my seniors and my uh, superiors were not going to believe this. And they're going to believe that this is one sophisticated trap. But as it turned out, it was not. Strangely, you know, in the WhatsApp groups that you get, uh, there's a, a awful WhatsApp going around about how this was a trap and so forth. It wasn't a trap. The files that we took were incredibly genuine and gave us into insight into the security branch that the ANC never had before. And that was fascinating for me. Yeah, and that's why the, there's a word that you use several times in the book that I find fascinating that just jumps out at me as a reviewer is happenstance. There's a lot that's deliberate about the fight against the apartheid, but there's also a lot of luck. And it's amazing how the luck of this character played such a massive role in helping you to understand how the ANC was infiltrated, and later with Operation Vula, how you use that to plug into intelligence for the final pushback. I mean, and that's not something you plan. That's something that I think you, you draw a contrast in the book between deliberately recruiting and a so-called walk-in. Yeah. Sure. I mean, the so the Nightingale, in classical intelligence terms, was a walk-in. Uh, and he walked in and, but he, the things he did, you know, just went beyond what a spy does. And this is why I say he was an ANC comrade. Yeah. Second last question and then we're going to leave it there because you and I can talk forever and that's courtesy of the excellence of your book. Can we just 
talk about and, and comment on it, right? Because it's it's too big an issue. One of the things that, that I really enjoy talking to Robert McBride about, based on Brian Rosprin's brilliant biography, which I also recommend, is betrayal. And I want deals with betrayal because the Nightingale Files also revealed how many Ascaris existed in your ranks. And that raises fascinating moral questions about how you deal with that on a personal level as a comrade for Roberts. What is your attitude towards a Matthew Lacordier where testimony is critical to sending you to the gallows? And, and the person says, well, I was thinking of my child. I, I want to see them again. That's why I started singing. Or I'm going insane. I'm literally seeing snakes all over the wall in solitary confinement. And it's not that I'm being a dick. It's just that I, I, I no longer want to see these apparitions. You contrast your attitude towards people who betray you with your brother Jonas's. Just tell us what the, what the difference is and whether you see complexity or, or, or not, because that's a debate that, that's ongoing. How does one view someone that, that couldn't endure interrogation in Section 29? So, Eunice is someone who's always lived his life. Uh, I mean, he has had a, a, a kind of moral compass that something is either right or wrong, and, 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 and through that lens, things are quite clear. And I think that is the lens that many of us in the ANC have. Uh, partly because the struggle was a moral struggle. The struggle was about dealing with, uh, you know, a, a very visible apartheid system. And you had to deal with it. And if you're a good human being, you couldn't sit on the side and not do anything, irrespective of your own conditions whether you suffered from apartheid or not. And that is why I, I honor so many white comrades who never suffered the brutality of apartheid, but joined the revolution to change it. I mean, because simply because they are good human beings. So the issue of good human beings often gets reflected in the moral issues of right or wrong, good or bad, and there is a, a dichotomy of that. But I must tell you, I've always struggled with that, di with that dichotomy. Uh, I always, and for reasons that I'm only starting to understand now, that I was always drawn into the grave uh, of why do these things exist? And if you delve deeper into the grave, you will then, I think, and I'm, I'm not necessarily comparing it to the ones who live in the dichotomy lens, but I just find the grave to be fascinating. And because that grave is fascinating, I mean, I, I could understand betrayal. I could understand reasons why people did what they did. Uh, and, I could never, and I could never take a harsh view on that. And then lastly, I want to offer a criticism that is a forgivable criticism. You owe us a second book. So that's a backhanded criticism. Um, I think it was you, Fatima, on Facebook that made a point with which I agree, and I didn't read the discussion below it, but I, I think we are on the same page. Your book is brilliant both for what it is about and what it leaves out. 
Now, any of us who are authors know the worst book reviewers are the people who tell you what book they wish the author had written, well, write it yourself. But in this, on this particular occasion, I think there are many people who are here who will be pleasantly surprised, firstly, that a spy can cry, is soft, is emotional, has a biography, because the shape family has been rendered flat, just like Robert McBride. So that's one achievement of the book. But I think many people will also think that the last chapter in the book is a disappointment for some readers. Because it reads like, if one is unkind, a long narrative bio of what you did after 1994, rather than taking us into your confidence about the politicization of our intelligence structures after 94, the hollowing out of intelligence, the parallel headquarters inside and outside the state, and the way in which it had been captured. So I wanted to give you an opportunity um, to, to tell me whether you deliberately left that out, if so, why, and whether we can extract a second book so you can spill the beans. Yeah, the... The second book. Okay, the moment that number six gets to number one, maybe uh, I will think about the second book. Uh, no, the, I, I, just, I just want to make this confession. I'm an accidental intelligence person who stayed too long in the world of intelligence. It is not me, not me anymore. And I don't want to be part of that old world uh, anymore. But it is not a bad world. It's not a bad world. It is a, a world that can, can be, uh, I think what we are seeing is the end of a Cold War intelligence paradigm. And I really hope that Cold War intelligence paradigm shuts down uh, and that a new intelligence world will emerge. Uh, and I think it will, will emerge. Uh, and here's the big, big dilemma. For us in this world to have effective intelligence, you've got to surrender your own privacy. You've got to agree on cameras around every corner. You're going to agree on your WhatsApp being read. You're going to agree on Facebook being read. You're going to agree on your entire life being predictable by algorithms. And that's the world that is coming. And if you ever want to get into that, read the book called Surveillance in the Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Because in that world, because all the intelligence services do, they try to predict what's going to happen. Well, with this IT-connected world, the prediction has already started. And so next time you put a posting on Facebook, think twice. The next time you put your photos out there, think twice. Because that's the world of the new intelligence that's coming. Now, what am I going to write about in the second book? Okay, you know, it's going to be all these dirty stories about ministers and what they did and didn't do. And I don't think, I think that's boring, you see. No. Uh, <laughs> Let me end off by reading the afterword. And again, this is an ode to the aesthetics. Right in the end, he writes the following. The rat is a real thing, by the way. It's such a literary ending to the book. After months of loneliness, lying on my bed, contemplating another endless day that blurred minutes into hours, 
into a never-ending stretch of time, a rat entered my life. It came into my cell the way rats do, uninvited, and by the scratching scurry of clawed feet announced its presence. I saw him, a large, hairy rodent, sniffing the air with an arrogance that mocked my incarceration and celebrated his freedom, his ability to come and go. My instant reaction was repulsion. In this unquiet moment, I reached for my shoe to hurl at this intrusive creature. Yet as my hand gripped the shoe, I stopped. This was the first living thing to enter my cell without the intention of hurting me. It came out of curiosity, perhaps attracted by the stench of my incarceration, perhaps driven by its own need for survival. He stared at me, I stared at him. The longer our gaze remained locked, the more I realized he had not come to harm me. My imprisonment was coincidental in his life. To him, I was an object of curiosity, nothing more, nothing less. I put down the shoe, my heart went out to this rat as he sniffed and scratched through my desolate existence. I felt a strange connection with this animal, a sense of happiness filled me as I marveled at the perfection of his shape. Over the next few days, I shared my food with him. I awaited his nightly visit. I cherished his company. I wished he would stay longer, but I had no control over this, and I learned to accept his schedule. And then, too soon, his nightly visit stopped. I felt a real sense of loss for my creature friend and wondered where he had gone. I wished him well as I grappled with his absence. Years later, I still think of my friend, the rat. There's no moral to this story. We shared a time. It ended. I found him, in him, a way to survive. I discovered the beauty of a rat and came to realize that there is this quality in all of us. Mo, from my generation to yours, congratulations.